Oh, you're recording me. Wait, oh, I changed my notes. Well, good morning. How are we? Good. Um, can I move around, Phil? Wander a, a little bit. Here? Do you want me to draw okay. a kind of chalk? Okay, circle? cut it here. Yeah, yeah. but not here. <laughs> okay, so um, what I'd love you to do first, if you've got a Bible with you, either a physical Bible, although probably on your phone or tablet or, or whatever, I'd love you to find Luke chapter 7. So we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 7. There are 50 verses there. Uh, we're going to spend about five minutes on each verse, so we'll finish about four o'clock. Um, which I can see you're all very, very happy about. Um, but before we get into God's Word, yeah, a little bit. It is great to be here. Gwen and I arrived on the Eurostar on uh, Thursday evening. It feels like since then all we've done is ride a bike. <laughs> uh, you know, when uh, Phil and Sarah said, do you ride bikes? We said yes. We didn't realise they meant all the time. <laughs> So uh, we have cycled a few kilometres over the last two days. We've had a lovely time getting to know this city. We popped up to Delft. We had a lovely time yesterday morning just chatting to some of you about marriage, about our marriage. Um, you learned that I'm a funny guy. You know, one of the things that Gwen said about me yesterday. Um, so we've loved being here. A little bit of our history. Uh, yeah, I grew up in Bedford. We met in Bedford and... Uh, we worked in the church there. Then in 2002, we moved to a town in Sussex called East Grinstead that none of you will have heard of. It's, oh, you've heard, of, you've heard of East Grinstead. You're the one. Um, so it's near Gatwick. Yeah, more people have heard of Bedford because of John Bunyan and things like that. But, um, so yeah, we moved to East Grinstead in 2002 and led a church there for uh, 17 years, started in a, and we were there in a school hall to start with, um, and then God blessed us and enabled us to buy a, a building, and it was, a, it was all very exciting. And then in 2018, at the beginning of 2018, God spoke to us very clearly about moving on and uh, laying down the church and handing the church over to a younger leadership team, uh, which was exciting, a bit nervy. We weren't sure God. Uh, God said very clearly, lay this down. And I said, that's fine. What am I going to pick up? And God said, I'm not going to tell you, which was mean of him, I thought. You know, I thought God is mean. I thought, well, this is not fair. But we laid down and we looked at various options. And then the um, new ground uh, core team, apostolic team, Dave, Holden and some of the team asked if we would move to London and support uh, a leadership team in London every day, church, and uh, work very much behind the scenes, which I was very, very happy with. I thought, okay, my time of leading the church is over, and I was very comfortable with that. You know, I felt God speak very clearly, and I thought, right, great, lay that down, work behind the scenes. You know, I'm, 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 I like a good spreadsheet. You know, I think uh, I was probably meant to be an accountant, but somehow I became a pastor. And uh, so I thought, that, that's fine. And we moved to London in 2019. And uh, within six months, we were in an international pandemic, which was like, ah, oh, OK, this is a bit different. And we were in a multi-venue church. We did a multi-venue church. And then we did two years. And then as we were coming out of the pandemic, the 
the guy who was leading the team I said, I'm leaving. I'm going to go do something else. And I'm like, okay. Um, and we were asked to step up and lead the team. So now we find ourselves in 2023 leading again and leading a multi-venue church in southwest London. And we do love it. You know, we do love what we're doing. Often you look back, don't you? And you think, ah, that's why God said that, that, and that. And at the time, you're like, what are you saying, Lord? But you write the things down, and then a year, two years, four years later, you go, ah, it didn't make sense then, but it does make sense now. And that would be our experience over the whole of our lives, actually. And you begin to learn to trust. You begin to learn just to receive it and write it down and pray into it knowing that God will work it out. Not always how you think God will work it out. Sometimes you receive a word, don't you? You think, that must mean that. And that doesn't happen. And you think, was that not God? And then you discover, oh, this happens. That was God, but it was about this, not about that. And so we, we love leading. It's been great to spend some time with you over these uh, 72 hours. As Phil said, uh, Phil and I met probably back in 1995, back in the 90s. Um, uh, uh, Phil had more hair, my hair was dark. Um, other than that, he looks identical, you know, and I look much older, which is unfair, to be honest. Um, so, and we got to know each other a bit then, and then over the last 30 years, our, our lives have kind of interwoven a bit, and then we've reconnected recently, which is great. And I've been asked to speak on Luke chapter 7. So Sarah emailed me, um, so we'd like, to, like you to preach. Um, actually said either of you can preach, but we decided I would preach on this occasion. And um, to begin with, I'll, I'll use Luke 7 verses 1 to 23, and I looked at those verses, I thought oh, there's a lot in there. And then, then we met on Zoom and talked about it, and she said, actually, have the whole chapter. And I'm like, I'm very generous. Great. <laughs> You know, uh, the whole chapter. So, and I like a challenge. I, they then did say you can pick a little bit of it, but by then I'd read the whole chapter. And I thought, well, I've read the whole chapter, so we might as well go with the whole chapter. I'm not going to read it all to you, because it is 50 verses that would use all our time. But I do want you to have it open, because I will refer to it. My encouragement to you is, through this week, spend time in this chapter. Yeah? So don't just listen to me for the next 20 minutes or so, but actually spend some time in it through this week. Because you may well discover stuff in it that I haven't discovered. Or there might be something I discovered that you think I want to dig into that a little bit more. And the, the aim of preaching is that this is not meant to be your only bit of the word in the week. Okay? It's not that you come on a Sunday and someone presents you with a great meal... And you think, well, I'll eat as much as I can because there's nothing else until next Sunday. Okay? That's not how we treat food. I mean, it's great to have croissants, but it's not the only food you're going to eat between now and next Sunday, I hope. Okay? And so with the Word of God, yeah, take this away and literally chew over it through the week. Spend some time in it. A lot happens in this chapter. 
It begins with these words. I'm reading from the NIV. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, I love that. Luke, does, Luke accepts that not everybody there was listening. Do you notice that? When Jesus finished saying all this to people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. That's how it starts. And so, so you have a number of events. This is what happens in chapter 7. You have a centurion servant who is about to die and is healed. Jesus doesn't even go there. He just speaks and the guy is healed. It's the only time in the gospel that Jesus heals someone like that. Just with a word from a distance. Okay. And then, after he's done that, he stumbles across a funeral and this son, this widow's son, the widow of Nain... Her only son has died. Jesus walks out to the, into the funeral procession. He walks in, places his hand on this open bier, carrying son, and says, young man, get up. The young man gets up. Okay. Then he wanders from there, and some followers of John, some disciples of John come to him and say, John's really worried. Are you really the one who is to come? Effectively, are you the Messiah? And Jesus doesn't answer the question. He says, go back and tell John what you've seen. The sick are healed and the dead are raised. And they go back and they tell John. And once they've gone back, Jesus then addresses the crowd and says, John is amazing. John's amazing. You've never seen anyone like John up to this point. But the first in the kingdom of God is greater than John was. Wow. And then he disciplines them, challenges them for their pride. The fact they, 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 they criticised John for being a hermit and they criticised him for being a drunkard. They criticised John for not eating enough and they criticised Jesus for eating too much. He says, basically, you're two-faced. Sorry, not you. I hope. Yeah. You're two-faced. And then a Pharisee invites him to dinner. Yeah? He's got a great name. He's called Simon. <laughs> a handsome guy, I've heard. Funny guy. Funny guy. Now you mention it. Much like yourself, Phil. <laughs> and while he's there, a, a woman of ill repute, as Jesus is eating, she weeps over him. And dries his feet with her hair, which is untied. Then she anoints him with perfume. And this Pharisee gets really upset about it. And Jesus tells him this parable. Two people owe two amounts of money. One a little bit of money, one a lot of money. Both debts are cleared. Who loves the person the most? Simon goes, oh, the person who's been forgiven more. Jesus says, that's right. That's right, Simon. I came into your house. You washed my feet. You didn't care for me. You didn't anoint me. But this woman, this woman, hasn't stopped kissing me. Hasn't stopped anointing me. Hasn't stopped worshipping me. Worshipping me. Because she knows she has been loved much. She has been forgiven much. There's a lot in there, isn't there? There's a lot in there. And it was my privilege, it's such a privilege to be a preacher. Because I don't have any choice but to read the Bible. 
Life is busy, isn't it? Life is busy and hectic. And if we're not careful, we can easily go a day or two days or three days or maybe even a week or maybe even two weeks. And think, Gosh, when did I last open the word? And the privilege of being a preacher is that week in, week out, we have to open the word. And it was my privilege on Monday to sit down for most of the day and just to open this chapter up and read it and get into it and read what some other people have written about it and pray about it. And I just want to share with you what I felt God speaking to me. First thing was this, chapter 7 follows chapter 6. Now just let that incredible truth <laughs> wash over you. From I mean, I went to university for four years to learn this stuff. Chapter 7 follows chapter 6. We know from Luke's writing, both at the start of uh, Luke's Gospel and his second part of his Gospel, the book of Acts, that Luke's writing is very deliberate. This is not just a kind of copy out of Luke's diary. Oh, it was Tuesday today and Jesus did this. No, Jesus set about deliberately writing down things that Jesus said and things that Jesus had did done. He's writing to real people. He's writing to a community of believers and he constructs his Gospel in a deliberate manner. And at the start of chapter 7, we read this. When Jesus has finished saying all this. That's very deliberate. So Jesus is telling us that what you're about to see Jesus do is following on from what you've heard Jesus say. Well, what did Jesus say? Well, if you go back into chapter 6, you get Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. What's called the Sermon on the Plain. Blessed are the peacemakers. Do not judge. The wise man builds his house on the rock. Woe to you who are rich today. You've received your reward. Luke is at the start of chapter 7 pointing us back to what Jesus has said. He is connecting us with what Jesus said about the kingdom of God. It's almost as if Luke is doing this. Jesus is going, you've heard me say this. You've heard me say, blessed are the poor. Now, look, this is how they get blessed. You've heard me say, do not judge. Now look what happens when you judge. It's almost like Jesus is fulfilling his own teaching. So Jesus says, it's no good if you hear what I say and don't do it. In fact, Jesus says, the person who hears the word of God and doesn't do it is foolish, is a fool. And remember, if, if, you're in, if you're talking in the Hebrew and you've got the Hebrew scriptures behind you and someone calls you a fool, you instantly think this, the fool says in his mind there is no God. So actually to hear the word of God and not do it is effectively to say, I don't believe in God. I don't think there is a God. Actually, no, you need to hear the word of God and you need to do the word of God. And so Jesus is almost applying his own teaching. That's the first thing I noticed. What's the next thing I noticed? That the kingdom of God is about power. So back in Luke 4, I think you're working through Luke. So back in Luke 4, Jesus stands up in the synagogue and reads from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. Yeah? To proclaim freedom to the captive. It's the kingdom manifesto of Jesus. And this passage reminds us that the kingdom of God comes about comes with power. 
healing power. There are three miracles in this passage. And each one is more impressive than the one before. So the first healing miracle is this. A servant's close to death. He hasn't died, but he's close to death. Jesus heals him. He's not even there. He might be there in his omnipresence, but he's not there in his manifest presence. He's still a distance away. Healing number two, where we go from somebody who was close to death to somebody who has died. Verses 11 to 17. Jesus raises the dead with a touch and a word. Get up, young man. He says, the young man got up and started to speak. I love that. <laughs> I was like, literally, it's like, here he is. He was obviously an external processor. Close <laughs> you were there yesterday. And it would be easy to think there's only two miracles. There's a third miracle. Salvation. Salvation. If you are a believer here this morning, you've experienced a miracle. You were dead in your sin and you've been made alive in Christ. And it's almost as if Luke is doing this. He's saying, yeah, we're very impressed by healing miracles. And hear me, I want to see more healing miracles. I want to see more healing miracles in my life. I really do. But the greatest miracle is salvation. The greatest miracle is not actually that Jesus lays his hand on a dead boy and sees him come alive. The greatest miracle is that this woman who thinks she's utterly lost has discovered she can have a relationship with the living God. Has discovered that though everybody else is judging her for her sin, her sin, God releases her from her sin. That Jesus calls her out of her sin into her inheritance in God. That where she has been described as a woman of ill repute, she doesn't even get a name, Jesus calls her a daughter of the living God. That's the greatest miracle there is. And when we're building church, we must keep reminding ourselves that the kingdom of God comes in power, and sometimes that power is healing, and we long for that. But actually, physical healing is meant to point to the greater miracle, which is salvation. So I noticed the miracles. Thirdly, I noticed that there are certain attitudes that release the kingdom of God. And there are certain attitudes that limit the kingdom of God. So we see compassion. This centurion, you know, who's a, a man of authority, you know, in, in the NIV translation it calls him a servant, they would have been a slave, almost certainly bought, possessed, you know, owned by this man. Most people who owned a slave, if the slave got it, sick, that was just like, oh well, oh well, I'll buy another one. And yet this centurion has compassion for his slave. That compassion makes space for a miracle. He has authority. He sends people, go get Jesus. Go get Jesus. What's more, there is honour. These Jews, who should have hated the centurion because he's part of the oppressive Roman occupying force, actually there's honour there. This man has helped us. This man built our synagogue. This is a God-free man. Jesus, you need to come to his house. There's honour. 
There's honour of the centurion for Jesus. The centurion says, no, I'm not worthy. I mean, that's that's a weird thing for a centurion to say. That really is. This is, a, this is a Jew of the occupied people. The centurion has the authority to send soldiers to Jesus and just bring him. Just go and get him. But he doesn't do that. He sends Jews to ask him, ask him to come. And then while he's on the way, he thinks, no, I'm not worthy of this man. Tell him to stop. Just speak. There's compassion, there's honour, there's faith. Both the centurion and the woman display faith. Again, I think it's deliberate that that Luke starts the chapter and finishes the chapter with faith. At the end of the chapter, Jesus says, your faith has saved you. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus says, I've not seen faith like this in, in Israel. Faith. Compassion, honour, faith. And they all point to this humility. What is the primary attitude that releases the power of God? It's humility. Humility. People who humbled themselves before Jesus and didn't care what others thought of them. What do the people think of this centurion sending for this Jewish carpenter? What do do people think of this woman? We know what people thought of the woman. She shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be touching her. She shouldn't be touching you. Who let her in? Both the centurion and the woman display humility. And that humility releases the power of God. Which is not surprising, because the word of God says this, God opposes the proud, but lifts up the humble. Lifts up the humble. If humility makes space for God to move, this passage also shows us that pride and religious self-reliance close down the space for God to move. Jesus' teaching in chapter 6 was about false prophets and judging others. Woe to you, you religious leaders, he says in chapter 6. And here we see people missing what God wants to do because of their pride. Now we could stop there. So there we have it, Simon. The passage is teaching me to be less proud and more humble. That's good. Yeah, I've come to church. I was feeling okay. Now I've been told I'm a bit proud. That's why God's not doing stuff in your life. Now I get home, go home feeling a bit guilty. And we could leave it there if you would like to. Phil, do you want to lead a response off of that? I said, well, God, what are you saying? Because this is true. If I just speak personally, I can be proud. I can block God because I want to sort it out myself if someone as a leader if someone comes to me with a problem I like solving that problem I like drawing on my experience or what I've read or my wisdom to help them and if I'm not careful I can miss what God wants to do 
Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to help. There's nothing wrong with experience. There's nothing wrong with human wisdom. There's nothing wrong with good teaching and all the rest of it. But this, challenge, this passage should challenge me. It should challenge those bits of me that are proud. It should challenge those bits of my walk with Jesus that I want to do on my own and not include the work of the Holy Spirit. But this passage also reveals God's heart. See, Luke's primary aim in his gospel is this, to introduce people to Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel about Jesus Christ. Not about Luke, not about the disciples, not about Jesus. This passage is about who Jesus is. It's about Jesus' attitude. It's about Jesus' character as he reveals the character of God. So let's look again at what Jesus does. Well, Jesus welcomes the faith of an enemy of Israel. doesn't judge his enemy. The centurion is Jesus' enemy. Jesus is a Jew. The centurion is part of the occupying force. The Romans were brutal. And yet Jesus welcomes the centurion's faith. Jesus honours the centurion's faith. Jesus commends this Roman centurion over everybody else. I have never seen such faith. Jesus has compassion for the widow. You read those six verses, 11 to 17, it says this. Jesus felt compassion. Jesus' heart went out to this woman. Jesus could have walked by. But he sees the woman's grief. He sees the woman's pain. Luke records for us that she is a widow, so she has no husband, and he was her only son. That means she has no source of income. That means she has no standing in Jewish society. What are the two questions would be asked of a woman? Who is your husband? And what do your sons do? This woman now has to go, my husband is dead and I have no sons. Jesus sees her. Jesus sees the woman who no one else will see. Jesus feels her grief. Jesus feels her pain. Jesus steps into that and brings healing. He's not just restoring life to the boy, he's restoring life to the woman because of his compassion. Jesus deals gently with doubt. We could have spent the whole time looking at John's question, are you the one? Are you the one? This man of faith, John the Baptist, what a man of faith. A man who's had this huge ministry. It says the whole of Judea went out to him to be baptised. But now he's in prison. He knows he's going to die. He's not in prison thinking maybe I'll get out. No, he is facing death. And he's wondering this. As many do towards the ends of their life, has my life mattered? Did I get it right? Is Jesus who I thought he was going to be? 
Because some of the stuff Jesus has done is not what John expected. John said, there's one coming after me and he's going to free us from oppression. And here's Jesus commending a centurion. Doesn't quite compute. And Jesus could have said, oh, John, where's your faith? Oh, you had a ministry, John, but where's your faith? No, he doesn't do that. He does two things. He says, just go and tell John this. The blind see. The deaf hear. The sick are healed. The poor are blessed. The dead are raised. Knowing that when they go back to John, and John says, what did they say? And they say, well, it's a bit enigmatic. They said this and this. He'll go. Because John knows his Old Testament. John knows Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea. John knows it. Jesus doesn't challenge John's doubt. He receives it. Speaks truth into it. And then, even though John's not there, and even though his disciples are not there, what does Jesus do? He honours John. He speaks to the crowd. Having spoken to John through his disciples, now he steps back and talks to them. Hey, you lot, before you start judging John and his lack of faith, you need to know this. There's no one greater. No one greater than John the Baptist. No man born of woman is greater than this man. And then typically Jesus, he goes, but the woman you are about to meet of ill repute, even she is greater than John the Baptist. He's so clever. But it's this gentleness of spirit. Jesus is even gentle with Simon the Pharisee's judgmental attitude. You notice that? He doesn't go, Simon, don't judge. He says, Simon, let me tell you a story. There's two people. Two people. Both owe some money. Little bit, big bit. Who loves more? He goes, you're right. You're right. You see, you rebuke someone, they get defensive, they forget the lesson. You give someone a little story and ask them what they think it means. That remains with them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, there's some discipline in there. There's some challenge in there. It's gentle. It's winning. It's winsome. It draws them in. Jesus honours this woman. A woman who no one should be honouring according to tradition. A woman who people cross the road to see in the day and visit in the night. A woman who has to live with hypocrisy of patriarchy. Jesus lifts her up. Jesus receives her worship. Jesus commends her. This woman appears in every one of the Gospels. There's not many people who appear in all the Gospels. This woman does. In the other Gospels, Jesus actually says... Wherever the gospel is preached, you'll hear about this woman. This woman who no one should be talking about. This is the beauty of this passage. It's who Jesus is. Yeah, it's a challenge about who I am. 
Simon, thanks for that, Lord. You can put my name in there. Don't be proud. You want to see me work? Well, give me space. Get your ego out of the way. Give me room. Bring me into the situation. Stop saying, oh, I have the answer, and start saying, let's go and see Jesus, see if he has the answer. There's that, but there's also this. This is how Jesus deals with these people. Why does it matter? Because this is how Jesus deals with us, friends. Jesus loves the faith in this room. Jesus commends the faith in this room. Jesus loved the steps of faith, big and small, that have got you to this room. Jesus meets you in your grief. Some of you had to grieve to get here. You've had to let things that you cherished die. You've had to let go of stuff. Friendships and houses and careers and even countries to be here. And Jesus says to you, I meet you in that place. I meet you in that place. I meet you in your grief. And I will bring healing. Might not look exactly as you think it will look, but I will bring healing. Jesus has compassion for you. This passage tells us that Jesus can cope with our doubt. Jesus can cope with your doubt. Those moments you go, have we made a mistake? Should we be here? Why did we move? Well, Jesus can cope with that. God can cope with that. He does not judge you for it. He receives it. Jesus honours you and intercedes for you right now. We're told in scripture that the risen Christ stands in the throne room of God and intercedes for you. Isn't that amazing? When you cannot pray, Jesus prays for you. When you do not know how to approach God, when you don't know how to approach the Father, Jesus approaches the Father for you. Jesus will gently challenge our pride. Listen to his voice. It is gentle. And finally, Jesus loves your worship. He loves your worship when you sing. He loves your worship when you care for your neighbours. He loves your worship when you work hard. He loves your worship when you parent well, when you're good friends. When you give of your time and your money and your resource and your energy. Jesus loves your worship. Jesus sees you. Sometimes when no one else in the room sees you, when you feel everybody else in the room is judging you, Jesus sees you and commends you. Amen? Why don't we stand? I'm going to pray and then Phil's going to lead us in some sung worship. So why don't you, if you can, why don't you lift your hands where you are?
I was always taught that there's a chance that God wants to give you something. And if you want to receive something, lift your hand.